Many years ago, Riley Knight completed a degree in history. This proved to be a bad move, as it was absolutely useless for him. Until now, here's some half-assed history. What's going on, mate? Great to have you along for some more half-assed history. This week on the agenda, we're going to be continuing our chat about Galileo Galilei, one of the greatest scientists ever to have lived. Someone who, of course, catapulted forward our understanding of, of, of the universe, really, and our, and our place within it. This is, of course, part two. We talked about uh, the early stages of Galileo's career last week. If you haven't listened to that, I, I mean, I don't know what's going on with you that you decide that We say this every time we do a two-parter. Why did you start with part two? Would you start reading Lord of the Rings at the Two Towers? I mean, you're going to get to... I mean, they're taking the hobbits to Isengard. You don't know what Isengard is, where it is. You don't know what the hobbits are. You don't know why they're taking them there, mate. You're not going to figure it out from context. Go back and listen to part number one, and then we'll get across part number two. But for those of you who have already listened to part number one, um, maybe you did it last week. You've, you know, forgotten what happened. We'll do a quick refresher here. Galileo, of course, gifted painter, uh, talented uh, inventor and engineer, but his real gift was scientific investigation and experimentation, particularly when it came to astronomy. Um, Now, he invented all sorts of things, thermometers, military compasses, but the truly monumental invention that he, well, he didn't necessarily invent it, but he certainly improved it to the point that it was a piece of technology like no other at the time, the telescope, right? And with a telescope, Galileo examined the night sky in greater detail than ever before. And then uh, one night in the year 1610, he discovered that Jupiter had moons. Now, this might not sound like much to us these days, but this discovery changed the course of scientific understanding because it was a huge strike against the widely held belief at the time that everything orbited the Earth, that the Earth was the centre of the universe and everything went around it. Because, I mean, look, we've just, uh, by finding out that Jupiter has moons, we've just proved that not everything orbits the Earth. Jupiter has moons that orbit it. So what else doesn't orbit the Earth? Perhaps the Sun? Galileo put together a lot of scientific evidence in favour of heliocentrism, the idea that the Earth goes around the Sun and not the other way around. And today, of course, we accept this as an undisputed fact. We know this to be true. But back then, this was not only a very controversial view to hold, but also a potentially very dangerous one. And the, uh, the Copernican Revolution, this, the, the shift away from geocentrism to heliocentrism, this was not a smooth or, or a peaceful transition as, a, as an outmoded and ultimately false scientific belief was uh, replaced by something that was supported by a huge amount of evidence. No, it was, it was a, a time of great turbulence. And, I mean, a lot of the turbulence associated with this period of scientific history is centred on Galileo, and that's what we're going to be talking about today. So just to reiterate again what we talked about last week, Galileo really is one of history's most preeminent scientists. Uh, a lot of that is to do with his discoveries, but a lot of it is also to do with the way he made those discoveries. We talked about his scientific rigour, his rigid adherence to evidence-based investigation, and this wasn't in keeping with the way that many scientists of the day approached their work. They would put the cart in front of the horse. They would pick a conclusion and then seek to prove it, right? Whereas Galileo, on the other hand, he took nothing for granted. He, he tried to fit his conclusion to the evidence. He didn't try to fit his evidence to meet a conclusion. And 
In this way, he was a pioneer of the scientific method. And there are some historians who credit him with inventing the scientific method. I don't personally agree with that. There were others before him that certainly utilized the scientific method to certain degrees. But much like with the telescope, Galileo took something and ran with it and improved it to the point where he really is, I think it's fair to say, the father of modern science because of, again, his evidence-based approach to scientific learning. Anyway, after all his successes as a scientist, and, you know, some failures too, you can't win them all, as we said last week, Galileo's heliocentric beliefs ended up getting him in a lot of trouble with one of the most important political authorities of the day, the Catholic Church. Now, the Church's authority wasn't just religious. You might be confused to hear this described as a political institution, but it was and still is a political institution. And being denounced by the church, being on the wrong side of the church, uh, meant facing devastating consequences, both both professionally and personally. And that's what's in store for Galileo today, I'm sorry to say. This bloke was not rewarded for his scientific genius. In fact, it's obviously quite the opposite. So let's continue the story of Galileo. Let's talk about what dominated the back half of his career, the infamous Galileo affair. So let's get to it. We're going all the way back here. We're going all the way back to 1615. This is when Galileo began to meet some very, very serious theological resistance to his far-sighted ideas about the earth and the sun and the universe more broadly. But actually, we can go back before that as well and talk about um, some of the scientific resistance that he faced as well. Because, I mean, this resistance, it wasn't just religious. There were people who, you know, self-professed scientists, uh, even leading scientific minds of the day, who very strongly disagreed with what uh, with what Galileo was putting forth. So let's talk about that. We'll talk about the scientific resistance first, and then we'll get to what happened in 1615 specifically on a, on a religious level. So before Galileo, as we've established, the consensus amongst astronomers and, and people in general, just broadly speaking, was that the sun went around the Earth. The, the Earth was the centre of the, of the universe and the sun orbited it. Now, some geocentrists, the people who believed in the, the sun going around the Earth, they refused to even entertain Galileo's ideas. They refused to even test them. I mean, Galileo offered them the use of his telescopes, his equipment, offered him offered them access to his the evidence that he'd compiled in 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 defence of his heliocentrism. And a lot of these blokes are just like, no, nah, not even interested. Not even look look down a telescope to see if he's right or wrong. And this sort of this stubborn, this pig-headed uh, stubbornness that a lot of these other astronomers were showing, it really, really frustrated Galileo, and it led him to complain about what he was going through and trying to bring other colleagues on side. Uh, he complained in a letter that he wrote to his friend and fellow astronomer, Johann Kepler. He wrote this, <clears throat> My dear Kepler, I wish that we might laugh at the remarkable stupidity of the common herd. What do you have to say about the principal philosophers of this academy who are filled with the stubbornness of an asp and do not want to look at either the planets, the moon, or the telescope, even though I have freely and deliberately offered them the opportunity a thousand times. Truly, just as the asp stops its ears, so do these philosophers shut their eyes to the light of truth. So Galileo, pretty obviously pretty bloody pissed off about this whole thing. And there, there are two interesting things that we learn from this letter. It is the fact that Despite him offering all these scientists or philosophers, as they called themselves those days, all these other scientists the opportunity to observe the evidence that he had had discovered himself with his telescopes, he's giving them the opportunity to to uh, correct their views here, and, and they're not taking it. They're they're very willfully ignorant in this situation. They don't want to change their view. We talked about the fact that they would 
you know, pick a conclusion and, and work to prove it, not the other way around. So that it, 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 this letter goes to show that Galileo really, really got a hard task in front of him in terms of getting these other scientists on side. The second thing that we learn about this is that apparently back then the asp was the animal that represented stubbornness and not the mule. I mean, the saying these days is as stubborn as a mule. Stubborn as an asp doesn't really, like what's, in what way is a snake a stubborn animal? doesn't make any sense. I mean, these days you think a snake's like, you know, tricksy, slippery, hard to, you know, you describe someone as a snake when they're being duplicitous or dishonest or, or sneaky. I don't know. I've never met, I've never met a stubborn snake. Maybe I haven't. I haven't met many snakes, I guess, but stubbornness isn't something that really stands out to me. A bull, maybe, sure, but like a, a mule, I would say, is a classic stubborn animal. Anyway, we're learning so much this week. But they say it takes one to know one. And let me let me tell you, when it comes to being as stubborn as an asp, Galileo right up there. Because this bloke refused to compromise his position. He refused to change the way that he approached his scientific investigation. His uncompromising adherence to scientific accuracy made him more than a few enemies, I have to say. He wasn't the most diplomatic bloke. I mean, we said in this, you can see in this letter, he's talking about the the remarkable stupidity of the common herd. This is, he's not a very diplomatic fella. And he put a fair few noses out of joint over the years, including amongst many Catholic scientists. And this had dire consequences for him. As I mean, as we'll come to, his enemies within the church certainly had their revenge in the long run. But ultimately speaking, Galileo's stubbornness is a lot more justifiable than the stubbornness of his colleagues who refused to even look down a telescope because, I mean, history has proven him right. He was stubbornly adhering to views that were tested well-founded and ultimately correct. So it's it's very difficult. To, I mean, he can go around calling other people stubborn all he wants because his stubbornness thoroughly justified by the long by the long march of history, he would have thought. Anyway, I don't want to make it sound like every single geocentric uh, scientist at the time was a, you know, a, a, a pig-headed, stubborn ignoramus because there were some scientific proponents of the geocentric model who could walk the walk and attempted to use evidence and reason to defeat Galileo's arguments about heliocentrism. Now, these arguments were wrong. However, they were pretty persuasive pieces of evidence for the geocentric theory. Um, And there's one in particular that actually makes a lot of sense when you look at it through the lens of what they knew then, right? And I'm going to try to explain. It's going to be a little bit difficult to explain without any visual aids not the podcast isn't the best medium to talk about the idea of parallax but we're we're going to attempt it here right because if the earth was indeed moving around the sun right as galileo put forth these geocentric scientists they say well no if that's the case there should be a parallax when we look up at the stars now again difficult to explain what a parallax is without without a visual aid. You can go online, you can see diagrams of a parallax and it might clear things up, but we will have a crack at, at explaining it here and now. Um, a parallax is according to the simple English Wikipedia, which I highly recommend whenever you're trying to read about something complicated that you know, you're too thick to understand. You go to the simple English Wikipedia. A lot of the time it'll explain it in very simple terms. Not this time, however. A parallax is the perceived change in position of an object seen from two different places. So... We need simpler terms. Thanks, simple English Wikipedia there. Imagine you're standing in the corner of a room and the left half of the far wall, the wall that you're facing, is painted red and the right half is painted blue. 
So you're standing in a room facing a wall that is split down the middle, left on the red, blue on the right. Now, if someone stands in the center of the room and you stand in the right-hand corner of the room and look at them opposite the painted wall, it will look like they are standing in front of a red wall, right? Because, because of the angle that you're viewing that at makes it look like the, their background is the red wall. But then if you walk over to the left-hand corner of the room without the person in the center moving, it will now look as though they have shifted to be in front of the blue wall. Again, because of the angle that you're viewing them at puts the blue wall behind them. Now they haven't moved, but it looks like their position has changed because the background behind them has shifted. So depending on the angle that we view things, they can shift against their background and that is a parallax. If the Earth moves around the sun, we, su- we should see an annual parallax as the stars all shift as the Earth moves, right? We should see the stars sort of shift against each other because of, because of our angle because our angle of viewing changes. So this makes sense. You think about it, it's like, oh, well, that makes a lot of sense. Why don't we? You might actually be thinking right now, well, hang on, yes, that's true. Why don't we see a parallax, right? Why, why isn't there a shift in the way that the stars look as, as, the, as the Earth moves around the sun as we know that it does? Well, as Nicholas Copernicus, a bloke who proposed heliocentrism before even Galileo, correctly theorized, the reason we don't see a parallax is because the stars are so, so far away, so vastly and incomprehensibly distant that the parallax is negligible. We actually, there is actually a parallax that takes place, but because the stars are so far away, it's just too small to notice. But then the people on the other side of the argument, the geocentrists, they go, well, ha ha one, I'll stop you there one second. There is no way the stars could be that far away that the parallax would be unobservably small. There's no way that those stars could be so distant because if they were so distant, how could we possibly see them? They, there's no way that they could be bright enough. For, for, for us to be able to see the stars at that distance, they would have to be enormous. They would have to be bigger even than our own sun. And of course, that isn't remotely plausible. So game, set, match, geocentrism, thanks for playing. Except, of course, distant stars are bigger than the sun, tens of times bigger, in some cases, a hundred times or more bigger. But at the time, Tycho Brahe and all the rest of these geocentric uh, scientists at this point, they're not to know that, of course. And we don't, we're not going to come down too hard on these blokes because they are attempting to use sound scientific reasoning to support their arguments, even though the thing that they're basing the reasoning on is incorrect. Of course, we know that these stars are Colossal. They're massive. They're they're bigger than our sun in many cases, and they're big enough that the light that they that they produce can be seen over the vast distances between ourselves and these stars, and render this parallax negligibly small. So, there were some seemingly reasonable scientific objections to Galileo's heliocentrism, although you know, in the long run, we know Copernicus, Galileo, they were right. Parallax isn't the defense of geocentrism that people thought it was, despite the fact that at the time it seemed like a, a reasoned argument. Anyway, that's broadly speaking. We've got across some of the scientific objections. Let's get to the religious and theological ones here, because this is where Galileo really got himself into hot water. I mentioned we we're going back to 1615. In 1615, this was when his writings gained the close attention 
of the Roman Inquisition. Uh-oh, this is not good news for Galileo. They were not too impressed with him going about spouting all this irreligious, potentially heretical nonsense about the earth going around the sun and the like. What's going on here, mate? You're talking out your bum. In fact, the Inquisition considered Galileo to be doing something that they really were not keen on Catholics doing, reinterpreting the Bible. This was the last bloody thing you wanted to do as a Catholic at this time because, you know, it's in the direct wake of the Protestant Reformation. Galileo, we mentioned last week, a devout Catholic himself, he was very concerned that his work was picking up this attention and he travelled to Rome personally to defend his writings from the Inquisition. But let me tell you, it ultimately didn't go too well for him. There are several verses in the Christian Bible that claim that the earth is stationary, that it doesn't move, and that the sun goes around it. Now, on top of that, as part of the Catholic Counter-Reformation to combat the rise of Protestantism, the Council of Trent had decreed that no one relying on his own judgment shall, in matters of faith and morals pertaining to the edification of Christian doctrine, distorting the Scriptures in accordance with his own conceptions, presumed to interpret them contrary to that sense which the Holy Mother Church has held or holds. So Galileo is out here promoting a viewpoint that does contradict an officially held Catholic viewpoint, and this is more dangerous than it sounds, especially as Galileo has enemies within the church that are very keen to see him brought low. They're going to sense weakness, they're going to pounce and make sure that this bloke pays the price for his perceived perceived heresy. But in defending his work, Galileo and the allies that he still had within the church, they stuck to the facts. They used the evidence that we discussed last week, Jupiter's moons, the phases of Venus, the fact that anyone at all could just look through a telescope and see these things for themselves. On the other side of the fence, however, the enemies of Galileo, the scientists whose noses had been put out of joint, the ones who were happy to accept and, and, and unquestioningly promote the church's orthodoxy, they're whispering in the ears of the Roman Inquisition. They're saying, no, this bloke, he doesn't know what he's talking about. It's dangerous. He's, he's, he's irreligious. He's heretical. He's all the rest of it. So you won't believe the conclusion that the Inquisition came to when dealing with Galileo's work. They found in 1616, they found that heliocentrism was <clears throat> foolish and absurd in philosophy and formally heretical since it explicitly contradicts in many places the sense of Holy Scripture. I mean, look, the Catholic Church had been wrong about more or less everything when it comes to how the world works and a lot else for centuries. So why stop now? Galileo was specifically told by the Inquisition to abandon his defense of heliocentrism. And luckily for him, he avoided being branded a heretic himself as he immediately backed down. He was given an assurance that he wouldn't be prosecuted for his heliocentrism if he immediately stopped teaching it and defending it and arguing in favor of it. And as part of broadly proclaiming heliocentrism to be heretical and false, the church also banned heliocentric books and writing. And this included not just Galileo's, uh, Galileo's writing, but also the writing of people like Nicholas Copernicus, right? These, these, these proponents of heliocentrism. Now, Galileo, who we've already established was a pretty cluey bloke overall, he made a pragmatic decision, even if it wasn't a particularly brave one, and he stayed away from the controversy. He accepted the, the church's decision, he promised to stop spruiking heliocentrism, and he attempted to move on with his scientific career with as little fuss as possible. Now, 
Not the gutsiest approach, certainly, but sometimes discretion is the better part of valour and Galileo, quite understandably, didn't want to be branded a heretic for his, for his scientific beliefs. And so he chilled out when it came to heliocentrism, very prudently, again, if not very bravely, and instead focused on other areas of investigation that were less likely to get him in trouble. But things changed, however, as we move into the 1620s. In 1623, a mate of Galileo's became Pope, Pope Urban VIII. And Galileo began to revisit his heliocentrist ideas in the wake of this. Last week, we talked about uh, Galileo's famous work, The Assayer, and its impassioned defence of the scientific method. And you might remember that it was dedicated to Pope Urban VIII. And between this dedication, the general friendly standing between the two men before he became Pope, and uh, with Galileo travelling to Rome to personally congratulate him, Urban and Galileo were on very, very good terms. And what's more, Urban VIII had actually opposed Galileo getting in trouble with the Inquisition before he became Pope. He had remained in support of Galileo after he backed away from the heliocentrist controversy. So, after becoming Pope, Urban actually reopened the topic with Galileo. He came to me and said, now listen, mate, I know you got a bad deal with all the heliocentric stuff last time around, but now that I'm Pope, I reckon you should go back to it because things can be a lot safer for you these days, right? And Galileo goes, mate, what do, you, what do you mean? What are you talking about? I'm not a heretic. I'm not touching this. They told me not to go anywhere near it. I'm not, I'll just forget about it. I'm, I'm happy doing other stuff. And Urban goes, no, no, mate, listen, listen. What you do is this, right? Here, here's, how you, here's how you solve this one. What I want you to do, I want you to write a book presenting both sides of the argument, right? In a, in a fair and balanced way. As long as you do as long as long you do that, you're covering your ass. You're not going to get in trouble. It'll be fine, right? I'm, I'm a pope. I'm going to see to it. As long as you present both sides of, uh, of this, this scientific argument, you're not going to get in any trouble as long as you're not, you know, favoring one view over the other. And Galileo goes, mate, you reckon you're sure about this? Because, I mean, you know, I could get in a lot. I was warned against this. You know, I was, I, I, you know you're telling me I'm not going to get in trouble? And Urban goes, mate, I'm the, I'm the bloody Pope. Don't worry about it. You won't get in trouble. Just make sure you don't look like you're advocating heliocentrism over geocentrism. Make sure it's balanced. Lay out both sides. You'll be golden. So Galileo, who's very happy to have another opportunity to write about heliocentrism without being punished as a heretic, he starts writing a new book. It takes him quite a while. It's called The Dialogue Concerning the Two Chief World Systems. Really snappy title there. And it's published in 1632 with the blessing of both the Pope and the Roman Inquisition, who gave him a special license in order to, to publish this book, again, in, in contravention of, broadly speaking, a lot of bans that had been placed on anything discussing heliocentrism. Except he ended up getting in a lot of trouble for this dialogue. A lot of trouble, because it was deemed to do the one thing that Urban VIII had asked him not to do. It was deemed to be in favour of heliocentrism. Here's the problem. Galileo wrote the book as a dialogue, as two people discussing the relative merits of the respective systems. And the church decided that the guy defending geocentrism sounded like a bit of an idiot who didn't make any sense. I mean, funny that, how the character with fundamentally flawed beliefs about the universe sounded like he didn't know what he was talking about. I don't think anyone saw that coming. But look, in fairness, Galileo didn't help he, he, he didn't do himself any favours because he called the character in favour of geocentrism. He called him Simplicio, which means something like simpleton in Italian. Um, and so the Pope was spitting chips because he thought that Galileo was making a mockery of him. He's come to Galileo and said, write this book, make sure it's balanced. And Galileo had seemingly deliberately made one of his characters an idiot, 
and had made that character be in defense of geocentrism, although it is hard to be in defense of geocentrism and not sound like an idiot. But this meant that Galileo was once again in hot water and the Pope demanded he return to Rome and face the Inquisition once again to defend himself. Now, things have changed, right? In the, in the, in the near decade since, Pope, uh, since Urban became Pope, things have changed. Their friendship has shifted. I mean, I say shifted, it's more or less been incinerated. The political wheeling and dealing of the church had begun to poison Urban against Galileo and this, this is now the final nail in the coffin, right? Galileo and Urban are not the mates that they used to be. And now with Galileo putting out this inflammatory piece of literature that was seemingly in defense of heliocentrism, he's in big trouble. So Galileo heads back to Rome. He is made to stand in defense of this new uh, this work, this new work that he's produced. And he's actually properly put on trial this time. And it, it was not a particularly pre- pleasant process for him, let me tell you. Under the threat of torture, Galileo was forced to concede that his book was not impartial after all. And as a result of this essential confession, he was found guilty and he had to face punishment. And this time, Galileo couldn't just get a slap on the wrist and accept that he was wrong and back away from his views in the way that he'd done a decade or more ago. This time, there was no backing away. The Inquisition made specific reference to how back in 1616, they had banned him from supporting heliocentrism. There wasn't the option of him getting a... I mean, he's already had his second chance and he's not getting a third one. He comes, oh, I had no idea. Oh, did you, oh, did you guys not like that? Oh, you should have told me. They did tell him. And so now, as he's been found, as he'd admitted to be promoting heliocentrism with this book after being told to not do exactly this, he stood to end up in a lot of trouble. This isn't his first offence. Luckily for Galileo, I mean, it could have been a lot worse. Luckily, he wasn't formally branded as a heretic. He was found deeply suspect of heresy, but he wasn't formally labelled a heretic. I mean, had he been, this would have resulted in him suffering horrifically, torture, all sorts of stuff, terrible. But all the same, for publicly defending heliocentrism, as he was deemed to have done with his book, he was sentenced to a lifetime of imprisonment. Now, in this podcast, broadly speaking, we have a long-standing tradition of saying, well, it only got worse from there. I'm very happy to say it did not get worse from there. It got not much better, but a little bit better for Galileo because his sentence of lifetime imprisonment, I mean, a terrible thing from a scientist, a terrible thing for a scientist to be cut off from the outside world, to be cut, to be removed from any opportunity for further research and investigation or experimentation. Fortunately for, fortunately for Galileo, his sentence was commuted to house arrest. So, not quite as bad as it could have been, considering the the, the broader picture, but all the same, still a, a terrible fate for anyone to suffer, locked up for the rest of his life, unable to leave his house. So, Galileo suffered mightily for his scientific genius, and further to all of this as well, his books were banned forever, both retroactively and future uh, actively, I don't know, meaning that anything that he went on to write, not just the stuff that he'd written, anything that he went on to write would also be banned from publication. Galileo was, in other words, cancelled by the Catholic Church, and it was an absolutely devastating blow against him. However, you've got to admire the bloke because once again, he took it on the chin. 
He accepted his punishment without complaint. Although, although there is a story that has lingered about his trial for a very long time, and it's almost certainly not true, but I probably do have to bring it up here and get across it. Um, but yeah, it's not true for reasons that will become very obvious very quickly. It's said that when the Inquisition f- formally denounced uh, Galileo and his heliocentrism uh, and asserted that the Earth is indeed the stationary centre of the universe, it's said that Galileo muttered under his breath, and yet it moves. Now, this would have been a very stupid thing to have done, given how close he had come to being tortured for heresy, and Galileo does really seem to have known when to fold him, so he probably didn't mutter, and yet it moves under his breath exactly at the moment that he was avoiding being branded a heretic. Um, But look, while he publicly renounced his views for the sake of, you know, not getting a deluxe suite in the Hot Pincer Hotel... He very probably held these views internally for the rest of his life. And what, you may wonder, did he do with the rest of his life? Well, it's not all doom and gloom. I'm happy to report he spent his remaining years doing a lot more science, mate. Don't you even worry about it. Even under house arrest, he was able to investigate, to experiment, and to write extensively although he never went anywhere near heliocentrism again. I mean, just you know, just to be sure. Instead, he did pioneering works, not in astronomy, but in physics. He made all sorts of groundbreaking discoveries in many areas of the discipline, although not all of his work was 100% up to scratch, uh, such as, I want to talk about this one, an experiment that he proposed to measure the speed of light. Not something that you would have thought they'd be able to measure back in the 17th century, but Galileo was determined to find out. So this was the experiment that he proposed. Check this out. He said, you get two blokes, right, and you stand them a long distance away from each other, although still they need to be able to see each other, so still have line of sight, but as far away as possible. Um, At night time, you give them both covered lanterns, and while facing each other across this distance, one of the blokes opens the lantern so the light shines out and is visible to the other. Now, when the second bloke sees the first light, the second bloke then opens his lantern, and so then the the light you know shines back towards the first bloke. And so the first bloke times how long it takes between him opening his lantern and then seeing the second one come back, and that's how long it took for the light to travel from him to the second bloke and then back. Genius. Except, you know more than a couple of issues there, the most important one being that light is just just a little bit too quick to measure over distances of, you know, a few hundred metres. Um, but I suppose the experimental principles behind the exercise are relatively sound as long as you account for how long it takes to physically open a, 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 la- a covered lantern's hatch. I don't know, not his best work. Anyway, the most famous work and perhaps the most important work that Galileo did in the later stages of his career uh, was very famously his work with falling bodies. Now, I'm not talking about human bodies. Like not, not corpses, not flinging corpses out of, uh, out of towers. In fact, he wasn't flinging anything out of towers. There's a famous story about Galileo dropping things off the Leaning Tower of Pisa and measuring how long it took for them to fall. Um, this would make a great story, but it is just not true. Um, it's uh, difficult to drop things off the top of any tower when you're under house arrest. But no, he worked inside. He actually usually used inclined planes and used weights of different kinds to to measure how quickly things accelerated. And he made another dramatic discovery here. He concluded 
that things accelerate uniformly regardless of their weight. And this is still a concept that just in terms of common sense, I guess, we struggle to come to terms with even today, right? Because when you look at something, for example, like a feather compared to a hammer, if you drop a feather and a hammer at the same time, obviously the the hammer will hit the ground first. And you could be forgiven for thinking that's because a hammer is heavier. But Galileo determined that it has nothing to do with that at all. The only reason that a hammer hits the ground before a feather is because of air resistance. It's nothing to do with weight. And there's a very, very simple way to prove this. And it's been proven. All you need to do is you get a hammer and you get a feather. You hold them out in front of you at exactly the same height and you drop them at exactly the same time. Very important to be exact here. You drop them and you've got to do it somewhere where there isn't any atmosphere. But if you do this... They'll both hit the ground at exactly the same time. So simple, right? I mean, you might not believe me. This experiment has been performed. You can go online and watch the results yourself. You might wonder where we managed to find somewhere without an atmosphere to to perform this experiment. And the answer is the moon. This is 100% true. As part of the Apollo 15 mission, episode 150, get across it, astronaut David Scott was filmed dropping a hammer and a feather at the same time. And sure enough, they both hit the lunar surface at the same time because of the lack of atmosphere. There's no air resistance on the feather. So this was more groundbreaking stuff from Galileo. It was followed up with more of the same. He theorized that things that were moving would continue to move until they were stopped by something. This is an idea that might be familiar to you already because it is a big part of Isaac Newton's laws of motion. Galileo was doing all of this research in a time before Newton was even born. Newton talked about standing on the shoulders of giants, and Galileo was one of those giants. Before classical mechanics were formalized by Newton and Euler and Leibniz, all the rest of them, Galileo was out there, grinding through the... Well, not out there, he was in there, in his house, grinding through these experiments, doing pionific scientific work that would help to forever change our understanding of the universe in which we live and the rules that the universe plays by. However, sadly, as time went on, Galileo's health began to fail. By 1638, he had lost his vision. He suffered chronic pain. He had terrible insomnia. I mean, he's in his 70s by this stage. Unfortunately, from then on, things didn't get any better. Ultimately, he died on the 8th of January, 1642, after a lifetime of truly incredible scientific discovery. One of the reasons that I chose Galileo as a topic for the last couple of weeks is because despite the fact that he is reasonably well known, the scientific legacy of this bloke is not reflected by his historical fame. Albert Einstein labelled Galileo as the father of modern science and Stephen Hawking said that Galileo is more responsible for modern science than anyone else in history. With his practical advancements in scientific equipment, with telescopes and compasses and whatever else, with his rigid adherence to scientific thought and reasoning when experimenting and working with evidence, and the incredible and far-sighted and ultimately correct conclusions that he came to with much of his work, everything from heliocentrism to the laws of motion, Galileo was absolutely instrumental in advancing humanity's scientific understanding like few others have ever been. And maybe I'm wrong about this, but personally speaking, I don't think he gets enough credit for it. 
We've all heard of Newton and Einstein and Darwin and these these other titans of scientific progress, but sometimes it seems that Galileo, he gets a bit of a second row seat. And as one of the greatest scientists the world has ever seen, I think he deserves a lot better. Galileo and his ideas about the universe in which we live were so far ahead of their time that he suffered terribly for them. He survived the threat of horrific torture and lived out his life under house arrest because of his genius. Galileo's writings weren't fully unbanned by the Catholic Church until 1835, and it took until 1992 for the Church to finally recognise the wrongs that they did to Galileo. However, in 2009, the 400th anniversary of Galileo's great discoveries with his telescopes, the moons of Jupiter, there were celebrations around the world as part of the International Year of Astronomy. And the Galileoscope was released, an inexpensive, high-quality telescope that you can use to examine the skies and even see the moons of Jupiter, just like Galileo did. Galileo laid the foundations for Newton and classical mechanics, and he made breathtakingly far-sighted discoveries about the nature of the universe in which we live. And he paid a higher price for this genius than he ever should have had to. All the same, Galileo's lifetime of scientific discovery changed our understanding of the world, of the solar system, and of the universe, and most importantly, of our place within it. But that's it. That's all she wrote today, sports fans. That is the end of the story of Galileo Galilei. And I always do enjoy a, 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 a an episode or a couple of episodes that focus on something like the history of science, that that celebrate the the progress that we've made as a, as a civilization. And, and Galileo, a big part of that. I mean, you've got Einstein and Hawking and others, other scientific luminaries like them praising this bloke. He's a big deal. And I'm glad that we've got across his entire story. And I hope you enjoyed it. Anyway. That is that for this week. Of course, all the boring housekeeping stuff right now. Halfhousehistory.net, you know all this. You can find the old episodes there. You can find links to the merch shop, the Patreon, all sorts of ways to support the show. If you want chuck to me, uh, chuck me a couple of dollars a month, you'll get access to all sorts of bonus content. Um, there's show notes. There's early access to episodes. There uh, is uh, uncut episodes. And, of course, exclusive, ex- exclusive Patreon-only merch, uh, as well as the merch that's publicly available for sale uh, at the merch shop. And please do get in touch. It's great to hear from people, uh, listeners around the world. Uh, thank you so very much to everyone who, who emails uh, with topic suggestions. Again, looking for broader ones at the moment. We are doing, a, we are doing sort of more famous uh, figures, identities, events from history at the moment. So, so looking for less specific uh, suggestions at the moment, but all suggestions, very, very grateful. I put them all on a big spreadsheet and I go through it every now and again to, uh, to harvest new content ideas. So thank you, to, thank you to everyone who's getting in touch. And most importantly... Thank you to the people who are out there spreading the word. Half Us History is slowly but surely growing every week. And I know that it's because of people who are out there uh, telling their friends and their families and whoever else about this dumb podcast. So thank you so very much to anyone who is out there uh, spreading the good word. And uh, if you apparently, algorithmically speaking, leaving reviews on places like Spotify and iTunes is very, very good for the show's spread and growth. So 
Uh, if you want to support the show for free in a very easy and simple way, go and leave a review. Leave it. I mean, leave a good review. Let's let's be real. A lot of people are like, oh, you know, leave a review. Let me know what you think. I mean, do it if you like. The po- if you don't like the podcast, I don't know why you're listening to the housekeeping bit at the end. Everyone skips this part. Thank you to you. You're a real fan. You're still listening. Good on you. Anyway, we're going to close out this week's episode with a question, of course, posed on Reddit. Reddit historian Jetty Gig asks, If Galileo proved two balls of different masses fall at the same rate, why does one of my balls hang lower than the other? 